Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk, and John's not here. John, where are you? He's not here. Well, um, you've probably heard the news. It came as a bit of a news flash earlier this week, but uh, F. Lee Bailey, the notorious and very talented criminal defense lawyer, uh, has died at the age of 87. He would have been 88, I think, uh, next week, so just shortly before his birthday, he's passed. But I want to talk about um, his career and the things that he did well, as well as the things that got him into some trouble. Um, probably the most significant thing that happened uh, to launch his career had to do with the Sam Shepard case. And if you're not familiar with that, it's um, supposedly the basis for the television series, The Fugitive, and also a movie that uh, followed, loosely based, but uh, uh, Sam Shepard was allegedly uh, misidentified as a suspect in the murder of his wife. And F. Lee Bailey um, was a young lawyer in the 1960s, and uh, he ended up taking the case up on appeal and successfully argued in the U.S. Supreme Court that the trial had denied Sam Shepard of due process. And there was a not guilty verdict that followed when the retrial occurred. And this was something that established F. Lee Bailey's reputation going forward as a very skilled defense lawyer. Many other uh, notable cases that he uh, was involved with was um, the Boston Strangler case. Um, this was, his name actually was Albert DeSalvo. Um, he was found guilty of some of the assaults, but never for the stranglings that he was associated with. There was a significant case in 1963. Uh, Carl A. Coppolino, this guy's name, accused of murdering retired Army Colonel William Farber, his neighbor and the husband of Marjorie Farber. And uh, he successfully defended him in New Jersey over the death of Farber in 1966. George Edderly, Ernest Medina, Patty Hurst was one of his clients. O.J. Simpson, William and Chantel McCorkle, you heard about that case, uh, and he actually conducted a mock trial of the Paul is dead rumor, which you may have heard about uh, concerning Paul McCartney and all of the evidence that appeared in on album covers and so forth, uh, supposedly giving hints to the public that Paul was dead and there was some sort of um, impersonator that was taking his place. And for a while, this was a rumor that gained some traction. And I think just for fun, uh, F. Lee Bailey, you know, conducted this mock trial to see if Paul really was dead. But um, he had one of those careers where he, you know, you probably say at the beginning he got lucky, had one of those big cases, worked very, very hard. And... Uh, established himself uh, early on as someone who uh, could fight for his client uh, till the end, no matter what, and achieve outstanding results. All of that are um, makes him someone who I certainly looked up to early in my career, and I thought of him as someone who uh, 
emulated the the very characteristics of tenacity hard work aggressiveness all the things that we want and need in the criminal justice system i've read several of his books and it's just fascinating what one question i had is because i've always thought about i wish i could write a book about all the cases i've had because there are so many interesting ones over the years but there's always this uh question about whether you can really publicly write about or talk about specifics of a case um where you don't have the client's complete consent in some of the cases that f lee bailey wrote about involve people that were no longer alive so he couldn't have gotten their consent but he did it anyway and he never really got in trouble for that but it's just one of those lingering questions i had because some of his books were you know chapter by chapter were different cases that he handled and what the strategy was what the outcome was how he ended up winning it um and so forth so um in in those types of situations you know it's it's a little ironic that there are people uh that are in the trenches on a daily basis that don't get national recognition they do outstanding jobs in court and i mean both prosecutors and defense lawyers um you know judges are supposed to be the referees in these types of things but when a controversy comes into court involving a criminal allegation the best way that we've figured out over the years to deal with it is a this search for the truth and you got to put a layer over that and that is you know is it legally something that can attach uh, before we deprive a person of their liberty or we label them as a uh, you know a felon or whatever the case may be given the, the charges and that's an important part as we all know of our criminal justice system is that before anything like that happens there are very important steps that need to be taken and what I often say is that although it is a search for the truth when you're in trial you have to examine the fact that we should only be comfortable with convictions where the jury is sure beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty which means sometimes as you can well imagine a person may in fact be entirely guilty of what they're accused of doing but we as a society have um, accepted the fact that that is a possibility and we're supposed to be comfortable with it a lot of people aren't but this is not a robotic system whereby um facts are added you know it's not numbers that are added up and then there's an equation that that spits out a number and then we know if the person's guilty or not i don't know if we'll ever get there maybe if we get to that big brother uh level that we're getting more and more complacent about and everything we do everywhere we go and everything we say and everything we think is monitored by the government then you know maybe there would be some more accuracy so to speak when it comes to people's wrongdoing and if we can really tell what happened on the other hand one of the reasons why that is so distasteful to our society is that we've never allowed the government to have that type of infiltration into our privacy and privacy if you think about it is one of those very important things that our bill of rights our overall constitutional values and our, our society at large holds as a very important value not because you're hiding something and not because you're doing something wrong but because that is the nature of the relationship we have with our government 
is that it's none of their business. Some of it, a lot of it is. But since that time, of course, we've had things happen, such as uh, taxes, right? That wasn't something that was part of our law way back in the beginning, but, you know, got added to the, uh, the overall structure of government. Um, and a lot more monitoring that occurs in a lot of different ways. So kind of interesting um, that there could be, I suppose, more accuracy in determining if someone did something wrong. And there might be more deterrence. But think about how that would feel if, if the government knew everything you were doing. And you would also run the risk, let's not forget, of suspicion, innuendo, uh, things that may look one way but aren't necessarily that way and although we could probably avoid the fallacies of human memory and emotion uh, still a lot of things that are against the law are based on circumstances and personally I think that would be a bad idea I don't know why I wandered off on that path but I did but back to F. Lee Bailey and, and um, you know the way that he attacked a case um, so many times, you know, just based on the pressures that are part of the system, uh, judges and many prosecutors, and unfortunately some defense lawyers, view this as almost a formality. Going through the motions, if you go to court on any given day and watch the number of people that are just pleading guilty, getting some kind of a deal, it's almost like uh, there's an expectation that that is the outcome in virtually every case. And it's it's an attitudinal type thing, if you want to look at it that way. But F. Lee Bailey represented the type of lawyer, which I have always aspired to be, to never take anything for granted, never look at the evidence and say, well, that's that, and give up, because there's always a deeper story. There's always something to uncover. There's always something more complex. We'll talk more about that when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. So we're talking about the idea of um, whether a typical case, if there is any such thing, uh, comes into court and the way that it's often viewed is, okay, the police report says A, B, and C. It works its way into a criminal complaint. The defendant receives that complaint and you know should enter a plea of not guilty at that point. And that is common even in cases where someone intends to resolve it later. And don't get me wrong, there are many of those cases where it, it is probably in the person's best interest to go ahead and resolve it, and they get that opportunity to say they accept responsibility, etc. But um, when that becomes the norm, and when that becomes what's expected, is when we have problems. And I encounter this on a regular basis. When, you, when you're in court, a client has hired me to defend that person vigorously, Put the put the state to its burden of proof and oftentimes uh well almost all the time i can say you cannot rely on what the police reports say or what witnesses say because there's so much influence that goes into that and you have to understand that this comes with experience and intuition and everything else but you have to understand that in every single case the way that evidence is gathered is that it involves law enforcement and there's an inherent bias there. I'm sure that there are many good police officers that do their absolute best to accurately and objectively record information, but they're human beings. 
like every other human being. And when they're called to the scene of a, an alleged crime, there's a natural process that's unavoidable. It doesn't mean that there, someone has ill intent or anything like that, but that natural process of trying to make a determination right there on the spot as to what happened. And one may try to remain objective and explore the possibilities and such, but that process of trying to figure out where your investigation is going to go right there on the spot immediately influences the way that everything else flows from that. And I see it time and time again where, you know, depending upon how a report is written, depending upon what the officer or detective focused on early in the investigation and what that you know, influenced in terms of belief and uh, how that investigation went forward, you see that it really comes from that initial contact and what assumptions are made in the beginning of the process. This happens all the time in, in so-called domestic cases where someone will respond to the scene and basically gather some quick facts, try and figure out what happened, but then the focus is always directed towards whomever, you know, whichever party in the dispute the officer believes to be culpable. And that may or may not be true at all. And we see sometimes these reports are generated in such a way that they are basically just there to support the reasons why the officer had that initial impression. Well, then it takes on a life of its own because once it's in writing and once it gets passed on to the prosecutor, those become quote unquote facts. And then those facts are things that they proceed on. Let's use that same scenario and expand it a little bit further. Let's just talk about a domestic situation. Somebody calls the police, could be a neighbor, could be one of the people involved in the incident and the police show up. Officer tries to gather some information. He sees that uh, the, the female spouse is crying and the male is there saying, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know what she's talking about. And then under the emotion and stress, perhaps even some drinking or other substance abuse has been going on. And the officer attempts to take a statement. And then through, you know, we say training and experience, which aren't necessarily good words in this context, an officer will, you know, try and coax out some more detail. Ma'am, I know this is hard for you and we're here to help and we can get you help, but please, you know, be honest now. Tell me exactly what happened. No, 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 no. You're not telling me everything. You need to tell me more. You know, it, so this combination of trying to hunt down the facts along with, you know, being a benevolent, you know, uh, savior for, for whatever has happened. And then, as I said, it, it takes on a life of its own and continues down the path of the facts get locked in, in a certain way. And the job of a good defense lawyer is to not take any of that at face value and to understand the process whereby that so-called evidence has been created. You know, one of the truly wonderful things about representing a person and not, not a file, not a stack of papers, not just trying to match facts up with what the law says, is that I get to sit down and hear what happened. 
you know, from a logical, um, hopefully more objective standpoint in the bright light of day and not right there on the scene. Now, some will say, and they're probably right, that information gathered as quickly as possible after an incident is probably more reliable than information that is recalled in the past, however long ago it might be. And that's generally true. However, that process of having someone explain to me exactly how it happened and exactly what's wrong and different in the police reports is just eye-opening in many cases. Now, I get it. Someone could be lying to me. I understand. That's totally reasonable to interject at that point. But the point is you, you get a different perspective. And very oftentimes, the way that it has been portrayed in the reports and in the complaint and, and in the prosecutor's file, it's either not the whole story or it's just the wrong story. And we see this a lot. So going back to my point before about when people are going through kind of this, uh, you know, we jokingly say it as a plea mill, you know, cranking out guilty verdicts and just this, uh, this feeling that when you see people in court lining up, just going in, going out, going in, going out and getting their cases done and over with. Yeah. Well, it, it, it lends itself to this expectation that that's what a regular case should be. Going back to when F. Lee Bailey was early in his career and the things that he did going on representing people throughout the rest of his career, really, up until he got disbarred, and we'll get to that in a minute, but um, he represented that type of lawyer, and there were, I think there were a lot more of them back then, where the norm, the typical approach to a case was to fight it and to challenge it. and. People wouldn't line up in court to plead guilty left and right. They lined up in court to have their, <coughs> excuse me, their trial. And, uh, you know, they, that was the normal thing. You'd, you'd meet in front of a judge and judge say, okay, this is going to trial, right? Yes, it is, judge. You know, nowadays it's like, okay, your client's pleading guilty, isn't he? Uh, why not? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, John and I have talked before about the, the trial tax and how that has become something that has greatly influenced the reliability of justice. And that's precisely what I'm getting at right here is that there's an expectation that if somebody is challenging the evidence or wants their day in court, that there's somehow, there's something wrong with them. They're not getting it. They're not playing ball the right way. Um, and that's unfortunate because it's almost like a an epidemic when it goes that way. And, and when we refer to the trial tax, what we're talking about is that if you try and exercise your right to trial and you try and do all the things that are constitutionally protected, um, oftentimes it's built into the system that the person suffers more. Because uh, if you cannot convince a jury or cannot convince the judge for whatever reason that the person really is not guilty, then you suffer a uh, the hammer <laughs> that comes down as a result of doing that and and making the state do its job um and that's how we should all look at it you know making the prosecutors do what they're supposed to do instead of finding a quick and easy way out of it 
is precisely what keeps everybody it's supposed to keep everybody honest right i i was in court the other day and it was a case where i had been litigating various aspects of it over the course of you know actually years a little more than three years this case had been pending because of all the different uh, issues that kept coming up and as i'd explore one it led to another and so on and the judge commented you know, to everybody in the courtroom that he um, appreciated and commended the fact that um, fighting for somebody and making sure that their constitutional rights are being 100% protected is precisely what we need in order to keep the system strong. So that judge got it, and I'm glad he said so. But sometimes we do run into this, you know, resistance when you're trying to do your job. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. So let's talk about what happened to um, F. Lee Bailey when he got his law license taken away from him. A couple of things were problematic for him. And, um, well, just going back a little further, uh, he was arrested for drunk driving back in 1982 and ultimately was uh, found guilty, not guilty, I mean. And, um, so there, there was some indication that there was a substance abuse issue going on, but there was another big case, and it was this case of Claude Duboc, and he um, was a marijuana dealer and had, Beffley Bailey had transferred a large portion of his assets into his own accounts, presumably as partial payment for his legal fees. The problem is that these were assets that were also subject to forfeiture. So let's talk about that for a second. Forfeiture of assets is something that the government has employed as an additional means of deterring controlled substances activity. And the basic thought behind it is that if one earns money through, you know, ill-gotten means, so to speak, and, uh, those funds have not been, you know, honestly earned through honest work. In other words, drug proceeds and invested in whatever, cars, homes, stocks, bonds, gold chains, whatever. Uh, that those are all assets that are subject to forfeiture because they were not earned from an actual, you know, paying wage where you pay taxes and everything else. And it's kind of this circular conundrum that... Uh, those who deal with illicit substances find themselves in is that not only is the thing that they're doing illegal, but everything that they get from it is also illegal, including the fact that you can't report to the IRS that you made $5 million this year in drug sales, right? <laughs> you know, oh, I want to report this so I can pay taxes on it, but, and how I got it was I'm a drug dealer. You know, that, that doesn't happen I, generally. I, I haven't really seen that successfully done in such a way um, where it it worked but so it's this this kind of a weird thing to kind of parse out because when someone is arrested for distributing controlled substances obviously a bad thing I'm not defending that practice in any way but then this big question is out there and a lot there's a lot of guesswork involved and a lot of amplification that occurs from the prosecutor's perspective. And it, and it goes like this. Oh, we believe, based on 
the observations we've made and the uh, surveillance of this person that we have a little snippet of the bigger picture and then they extrapolate from there and say well we did three controlled buys of an ounce of marijuana each and based on the fact that we believe Joe Schmo does this three times a day and he's been doing it for six years and somebody else said that they bought such and such from him that they kind of add it all up and they say oh well every dollar this guy made because he didn't have a legitimate job is you know something that was ill-gotten and anything he bought with it anything he spent it on is also you know illegal and subject to forfeiture I remember back in the days when we had that dare program you know dare to be dare to say no to drugs or whatever and it was a little controversial in the in the sense that uh, it was this money that was being gathered by law enforcement in exchange sometimes for a lesser sentence if somebody you know donated money to this dare fund and it was used to purchase all kinds of fancy police equipment and and you know stuff like that and the reason it ran into problems is that it, it was being used as a way to basically coerce somebody or you know look at it both ways allowing somebody to buy their way out of trouble or more trouble rather and at the same time it just had this this overall feel of bribery or whatever you want to call it but anyway this forfeiture of assets you know has always applied to vehicles homes whatever the person may have so in this particular case the reason F. Lee Bailey got into trouble is that he had this theory um, which proved out to be proved to be unsound but it was his theory and perhaps motivated by greed but he said all right I will represent this person and my fee is going to be all of this stock that he owns in a pharmaceutical company and it was anticipated that in the client that is the client owns that stock um, it was believed at the time and it turned out to be true that the stock was going to greatly increase in value uh, fairly soon because of some advancements that have been made by that particular pharmaceutical company so F. Lee Bailey does some research he's like hey I'm gonna charge this dude you know six million dollars and he's gonna pay me in the form of these um, stocks that I know are gonna increase in value and sure enough they did they went up to 20 million dollars so F. Lee Bailey's argument was that's my fee and that's what I deserve uh, the problem is at the time that that transfer was made it was known because the defendant was on notice and presumably the defendant's attorney was on notice that any assets the person had were subject to potential forfeiture and that's what happened the uh, all of the assets of this individual were deemed forfeited to the government and because this transfer had taken place the government argued that the stocks that had now been put in the name of F. Lee Bailey were contraband and that he had to give them up and he fought it and he fought it in such a way that he ended up getting himself disbarred <laughs> um, where he lost his law license and you have to understand that an actual disbarment is something that uh, takes quite an accomplishment in the sense that it usually involves a pattern of misconduct it usually involves something that is 
so serious that the person's integrity is completely, you know, it's beyond questioning the integrity. It's that there is none, you know, that's the idea. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how these disciplinary functions in the legal system work. So, you know, I say this all the time, what do lawyers do? They read, they talk, and they write stuff that we all do, right? But apparently there's something special about them where they get to do it pursuant to this license that they have to practice law. And if you go back this to in history, like this whole idea of why one must be licensed to practice law, there's a number of factors that go into that. One of it is pure expediency, meaning that when you're in court and there's a very heavy caseload, the judges and the judicial system itself expects that a, a properly trained lawyer will recognize a valid argument versus an invalid one, um, will be learned in the law so that you're not raising something that will not work due to precedent or how statutory interpretation works. Or if you are truly pushing the boundaries of where the law may change on appeal, that's good too. But if you're someone that hasn't doesn't have that training and doesn't recognize those types of things, the view is that you'll probably be wasting a bunch of time. Um, but and, and frankly, anybody can come into court and represent anybody if they have this law license. Well, how do you get one? In most states, you know, and I'm going to exclude Wisconsin from this discussion because Wisconsin is different, but most states, um, a law license requires graduating from an ABA accredited law school and then taking the infamous bar exam, which is a very difficult two day long test, part of which includes a multiple choice uh, type exam called the multi-state bar exam. And then something that is state specific on a different on a second day um, of the exam where essays are written that incorporate specifics of state law. So the the idea behind this is that it's, you know, you may have passed all your classes in law school, you may have shown up and maybe taken some notes and but this is like presumably a way to make sure that you were paying attention, you know, that you you didn't just uh slide by. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that it's another hurdle that is designed to keep the population of lawyers under control. And this is where we come into a conflict between private enterprises being universities, law schools, that take money from people in order for them to graduate with a degree. Um, so in that private profit world, you have to compare that, you know, there can't really be limitations on that. The American Bar Association or anybody else can't say, hey, you can't have this, you can only have this many students. No, I mean, if there's more people willing to pay and they have the faculty support it, yes, you're going to have more students. That's just natural. Well, we'll pick up on that thought when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. Uh, we were just before the break talking about how there's this tension between the law schools most of which are in it for profit. And then when someone is actually allowed to practice law after receiving that law degree, and the fact that many states, most states have this additional 
test that has to be done. And you might think, oh, well, hey, somebody took tests all through law school, right? It's just one more. No, because at that point, the state bar for that particular state gets involved with the regulation of the legal profession and in more ways than just the quality of someone's education. It's designed to keep the number of lawyers in control. Okay. I'll say that again, to keep the number of lawyers in control, which is why in states like New York, where there are many, many, many people taking the bar exam every year, the pass rate doesn't reflect how well somebody did on the exam necessarily. I mean, someone could get theoretically, you know, 85 or 90% of the questions right, but not pass that particular year because the state bar has decided we're only going to let a certain number of lawyers get their law licenses in our state this year so that we don't have too many of them. You see what I'm saying? So that is a process that is somewhat frustrating because it, it really kind of goes in the wrong direction as to whether or not the integrity of the profession itself is something that's being sustained. But Wisconsin does it better and Wisconsin does it the right way. It's because of a couple of reasons. One is we only have two law schools in Wisconsin. In New York, I lost count, but it's like, I don't know, a lot. <laughs> um, so they're, you know, we're not dealing with as many people that have to be quote unquote regulated. And what's happened is, you know, both law schools in Wisconsin have established that they um, incorporate enough training in both uh, ethics and substance that when one graduates from either of those institutions, the learning process and the studying and grading process has already instilled the necessary um, knowledge and values that are uh, required to practice law. And that's, first of all, it's better because there's it's built into the program and that's when you should be learning it anyway, not studying for a bar exam to learn how to pass it instead of how to know it, you know. But also because... Um, it's very transparent and there's nothing there's nothing tricky about you know uh, when you don't know the answer always answer d you know <laughs> some of those little tricks they give you to try and uh, boost your chances of of passing there's also an entire industry out there focused on charging um bar examinees uh money a lot of money to train them on the way the test works. And you go to these classes. Um, I went I went to them and it's silly. I mean, you're not learning anything about the law. You're learning about how to pass the test and it costs thousands of dollars. And the idea is that you're gonna have the upper hand. You're gonna be able to do better than somebody that didn't pay that money. And, you know, it's preposterous. Um, it's all a game is really what it is. So fortunately, here in Wisconsin, we have the wisdom to bypass that entire process. And that, that comes from our Board of Bar Examiners, which is part of the Supreme Court, and they've decided that that's just not necessary. Um, Marquette University and the University of Wisconsin-Madison are the two schools that we have that uh, offer law degree programs and have those standards built into them. Well, getting back to what F. Lee Bailey did wrong, um, it was deemed an act of 
utter selfishness and flagrant violation of the law, specifically um, rising to the level of disbarment, I believe, because it was a massive amount of money. It was done with um, malice aforethought, you might say, meaning that he knew darn well that this was money, this was valuable stock that the government was going to want to get its hands on and that it should not be used for legal fees. You know, a lot of people cite that cases why you can't engage in, you know, kind of horse trading or horse bartering, they call it, um, where let's say a client comes in and says, hey, I've got this big drug case, but I'll give you my, you know, custom 1958 Chevy. And you're supposed to say, no, I'm not going to do that. You're supposed to pay me the right way. And you know, I need to know where that money came from and that it didn't come from drugs, etc. Um but not, not only did F. Lee Bailey fail to do that, he did it, he failed big time, big time, because uh, it was such a notorious and dramatically, um, you know, reported case because of the large amount of money that we were talking about at the time. Um, so it was really, it, he could have easily taken care of it by saying, oops, my bad, yeah, you're right, this was subject to forfeiture, I'm giving it all back, but he refused. And he fought it, and he fought it in such a way that he didn't really have any legitimate legal ground to stand on. And like what happens in a lot, of, a lot of cases, a lot of people, a large amount of money, you know, shades how the person views what they should be doing. And of course, yeah, it's a subjective thing. And when somebody says, "Hey, if I view it this way, this particular way, and I take this particular position, guess what? I have a lot of money." If I view it a different way, then I don't have a lot of money. So, you know, there's that incentive to kind of view it that way, right? Well, I just want to talk about a, a couple of other uh, cases that F. Lee Bailey had just because they were so high profile. I mean, the biggest one of all was the O.J. Simpson case and his participation in that. He was one of the members of the Dream Team, along with Johnny Cochran and Barry Sheck and, and others. Um, Bob Kardashian, wasn't he part of that? Um, so that that was the kind of case where it certainly wasn't the first high profile case where there was a, a team of lawyers that uh, collaborated together to achieve a result. But it was also, at least in my mind, the first uh, fully in real time televised long term trial. That, that I remember seeing on television. And the rules vary in different states as to whether or not things like that can be televised, and it's usually almost always left up to the discretion of the presiding judge, who has an interest in making sure it doesn't turn into a circus and that it doesn't influence the proceedings that occur. On the other hand, let's not forget, every trial is public, open to the public. Um, only the only closed proceedings are things that by law are not open to the public such as juvenile proceedings or something that involves a mental health commitment and that's when you'll see the court you know the courtroom doors closed and it'll say closed hearing but everything else um, civil cases that involve people fighting over money or any criminal charge or any citation that involves some sort of violation always open to the public so a judge in that situation has to balance 
the, the public's interest in observing anything that happens in court with the potential disruption of the proceedings. So I remember watching the trial and I remember the different lawyers taking their turns doing all the different things. And it was just fascinating to see kind of how these these uh, outside matters, if you want to say, you know, other aspects of the case, if you follow the the, the chain of events and and how things may have influenced. And that was one of the times I remember learning how cross-examination of a critical witness that goes into uh, territory such as bias is something that can have such a tremendous impact. Because after all, most cases involve somebody coming in and saying, I saw this or I know this person did that because of A, B, and C. They go through that process. If you can put another layer on that and say, okay, well, what is the bias behind this person? Why is the person saying it? And it can go to the the witness is lying or the witness is mistaken or the witness believes this because of a particular bias. And that's what that's when you have to question the authenticity of what they're saying. So, you know, you recall the police officer that was involved in the case that it turned out he had done all this stuff that was overtly racist and denied it and got confronted with facts that he could not escape from. And the trial became uh, Mark Furman was his name, became this uh, focus on like, you know, why did why was there this type of um you know, uh, influence on how the evidence was gathered. Were there uh, sufficient investigation leads into other suspects, for example? And it was all very effective. And whether you believe uh, that OJ was guilty or not, I think most people believe he was guilty. You see the effect of of good lawyering. So that's all the time we have. And uh, you can tune in next week, as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. See you next week.